Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen on this beautiful Tuesday, June the 22nd. And you may say to yourself, I'm not sure it's beautiful where I am yet. Well, just pause there for just a moment and consider that um, you and I awoke this morning in the reality of God's redeemed creation or creation in the midst of being redeemed. So here's a little story for us this morning. Uh, The way I'm telling it, weaving two headlines together from Australia, the rain fell, the water rose, and the spiders left their island home in search of higher ground. Well, that got people wondering why there were so many spiders arriving on their shores, covering their town in webs. So the spiders led to the question, well, where did all the little penguins go? Because all the little penguins used to eat all the little spiders. Well, that led to the story about failed human intervention in nature. Yep, enter the Tasmanian devil. You say to yourself, pretty sure Tasmania and Australia, not super duper close together, and yet they collaborated to save the Tasmanian devil from its own uh, self-inflicted disease. So the Tasmanian devils were biting each other in the face, and they were transmitting to one another this deadly disease. That's only affecting Tasmanian devils, by the way. And so the Tasmanian devil population was decreasing because, let's remember, by self-inflicting, biting each other in the face. And so they thought, you know what? Let's take them somewhere where they've never been before, and let's introduce them to a place where they can, well, spread out and they can repopulate. Well, little penguins used to live there, and little penguins, come to find out, taste really good to Tasmanian devils. So the human resolution to ship a bunch of Tasmanian devils to a place that was not native for them actually resulted in killing off the entire little penguin population that used to live there. Predictably, well, nature took its course. When the native birds were gone, come to find out, the spider population exploded. And where did the spider population go when the rain fell and the water rose? Well, they moved into an Australian town, which is now, according to the Washington Post, completely covered in spider webs. So we talk about unanticipated consequences of our behaviors, which actually leads us all the way back to creation. Because we're going to talk here about the nature of nature. So this is a little bit of a a story challenging us to think about um, where we are in terms of natural cycles and where we are in terms of the supernatural plan of God. So we have the nature of nature in God's original design, reread the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we have the account of the fall, the the nature of the fall and the fallen nature of nature following the fall of man. So you've got to read Genesis 3 when literally everything changed. And then, yes, you've got to read about the hope of redemption, the new creation, Read, read in the book of Revelation what it's going to be like to live in the new heaven on the new earth. 
And right now, we live in the midst of what the Apostle Paul describes as creation's groaning. Creation's groaning with eager longing for man's redemption. We will bring nature with us into a renewed and restored, redeemed reality in the kingdom of heaven. So as people who are bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear on the kingdoms of this world today, let us remember that nature is a part of all of that. So a little invitation this morning through a story to think about what we're thinking about today. Next up, we got Nick Pitts, fellow from the Institute for Global Engagement. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Nick Pitts. You know him from the Institute for Global Engagement and one of the most joyful people we talk to here on Mornings with Carmen. Nick, welcome back. Happy Onion Ring Day, Carmen. Happy <gasps> Onion Ring Day. Probably. Okay, do yeah, you know I'm at uh, fitness most, camp? Because I can't have an onion ring. I don't know. I'll have to ask. Oh, like, is there a no. way we could have an onion ring? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Nothing. I don't, yeah. So, but thank you. I don't know, maybe in an air fryer with some sort of gluten-free exterior business. I don't know that that would be a real onion ring. I, that might not be celebratory at all. Uh, yeah, that might be more of a, a painful process than it is a celebratory delicious treat, but <laughs> we are. You can have my onion ring. How's that sound? Celebrate, <laughs> thank you, thank celebrate you. with two. Celebrate with two. Okay, okay. so... Um, so I want to talk with you about Morgan Arnold, but I also want to talk with you about David Perry, who's actually the journalist um, who wrote the story, uh, who who wrote this story up, because this is really not his area of journalistic expertise. He's a historian. Um, I mean, he wrote a book on what the new history of the Middle Eve, medieval Europe. Uh, he's a senior academic advisor yeah. in the history department at the University of Minnesota. Not a guy who we would expect to see writing about the concerns of kids with special needs. That actually is a part, I think, of the conversation today. Um, so who is Morgan Arnold? What is going on? And why is David Perry writing about her? Yeah, so David Perry, uh, it's in the CNN article. It's, it's an opinion piece. He's got a, um, he's a, just a, 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 um, a author, obviously, but he's also got a son, a non-speaking autistic, a son who is, has non-speaking autism with Down syndrome, Down syndrome, and he just finished eighth grade. And so, um, he just, he took an interest to a viral story about Morgan Arnold, who was an eighth grader with Down syndrome that was devoted to her. Uh, school's cheerleading squad, but was there was two pictures that began circulating, one that included Morgan and another that didn't. And for me, it, it just is another, it's a reminder of two things. One, that that children have the propensity to help us see things in a fresh and a new ways. Um, uh, so you might hear, for those that have ears to hear, it might, it might uh, sound like the kingdom of hot. The kingdom of God um, is very similar to children, as Jesus would say. Uh, but then also, it just helps us to be able to see how sensitive it is as we as a culture have begun to gloss over, or not even gloss over, but 
now we've got excuses come in hand for individuals that are wanting to um, really airbrush out and to paint over these individuals that happen to have Down syndrome that are such instrumental parts of who we are as a culture. So um, for folks who are listening, there is a cheerleading squad um, and it includes uh, Morgan. But in the photograph for Shoreline Junior High School, when the cheerleading picture appeared in the yearbook, um, there is a picture that does not include Morgan. And so um, one of the points that uh, that the author of this opinion piece makes is, you know, what did it communicate to the able-bodied girls on the cheerleading squad when they were asked to reassemble to take a picture that excluded her? Um, and then where where and how was the decision made um, to include the picture that excluded Morgan in the yearbook as opposed to the picture that included her? Now, I got to tell you, <clears throat> um, I was the editor of my high school yearbook. I have no idea. I have no recollection of how we picked the pictures we picked to go into the yearbook. I can also tell you that um, concerns about including everybody were probably not top of mind for us as high school students. And so Mm -hmm. um, the adults engaged here in this process um, are probably the ones who we need to be most concerned about in terms of how this process is working. But if you guys want to read this, it is a really good piece. It's a very provocative conversation. Utah cheerleading photo incident sends a message. It is posted at CNN.com. Um, anything else on this, Nick, before we leave this topic and take a quick break? Yeah. Yeah. The, one quick thing, just thinking about it more, like just the idea that what, like one, what is the, what is the message it communicates to the girls, uh, to the cheerleaders, right? They're high schoolers cheerleading high school sports. 99% of these individuals, more than 99% aren't going to go on and you'll, uh, and, and make a profession out of these particular sports because we know it to be true that on the playing field that include, including cheerleaders, it's, it's team building exercises. These are life lessons they're learning that are outside the classroom. And it's just kind of sad that we're, they're learning a lesson that could be potentially be detrimental to what we would expect them in, in the larger culture. And so just kind of, it's frustrating to say the least, but hopefully by raising awareness and the controversy this has caused, hopefully there's second and third lessons to be learned outside of this as well for everyone involved. All right. When we come back from a very brief break, um, Nick and I are going to turn our attention to an event that unfolded in Fort Lauderdale that hopefully is going to teach us a little bit more about not jumping to conclusions. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Nick Pitts. You can follow him on Twitter at JNickPitts. Um, Nick, what happened in Fort Lauderdale and maybe what does it teach us about, wow, withholding judgment at least 15 minutes before we spout off um, and describe things in ways that might turn out to just not be true? Yeah. So uh, over the weekend, Fort Lauderdale, um, uh, Fort Lauderdale was holding a type of pride celebration since it is um, uh, gay pride month or LGBTQI plus a 
Pride Month and during one of these celebrations, unfortunately, there was a car that um, kind of careened and crashed into the crowd. One person uh, uh, lost their life and others were injured. The truck narrowly missed Representative Deborah, Deborah Wasserman Schultz, who is a representative out of Florida. And immediately after the crash, Fort Lauderdale Mayor Dean Trentalis is um um, is facing significant backlash because of his attributing this just moments afterward to a terrorist attack, quote, against LGBTQ community. And this was before all the facts merged. And now the facts are coming out that the driver um, uh, was uh, probably part of the Fort Lauderdale Gay Men's Choir family. And uh, he is now the Fort, Fort Lauderdale Mayor Staten facing backlash for speaking before uh, all the facts have emerged and attributing uh, a, a sinister motive to individuals in which it in turn was anything but. Yeah, I think that, you know, in the end, what we're going to probably discover is that this 77-year-old man who had ailments preventing him from walking in the parade and who was selected to drive the lead vehicle press the gas instead of the brake. I mean, you know, I mean, he, there's, I don't see any other way that a Dodge Ram truck accelerates into a crowd and crosses every lane of traffic available to it and runs into a fence and only then stops unless, like, your foot's on the wrong pedal. And so, you know, I think that we're talking here about a person who made a mistake and it resulted in a horrible tragedy um, mm -hmm. But for the mayor to get on social media and and on media um, and publicly declare it to be a terrorist act and to be for it to be intentional and to say this is exactly what it was. I mean, with with no knowledge of what actually happened, I just think that we need to be reserving judgment. Um, I mean, if he had waited 15 minutes, is one of the things that the article points out, if he'd waited 15 minutes, the facts of the matter would have come out. So yes. uh, maybe just our encouragement today for people to withhold judgment long enough that um, long enough that there's space for the truth to emerge. Yeah, you know, there, there's a couple of things that Scripture can really illuminate about this, just being the, the bright light that it is, is, is one, we know it to be true that uh, just out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so uh, this individual, the mayor, was simply just speaking what he thought um, was just animosity towards the LGBTQ crowd. But we also know the power of what Scripture says of being slow to speak and quick to listen. But in those moments, we, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to harp on the mayor too much. But I do think it's an illuminating lesson for all of us. And there's some interesting research out of it too. Um, like, uh, so for example, there was a three-year study that was conducted that found that individuals um, that in moments of high stress, um, what we know to be true is that the things that we try to conceal. Um, the things that we try to conceal are often shared publicly. Um, it was conducted over three years, essentially what's known as arousal, awakes an individual up. And that the information that requires effort to conceal um, kind of fails in those particular moments. And so when we're, when we're trying to hide information, just know in high stress situations, that information will inevitably overflow out of the heart. 
And it's just another reminder for us just to be very cautious about what we're putting into us, uh, right, and the information that we're allowing to come in, and then in turn being prepared in those moments of high stress to give a response for the hope that's within us. All right, and then we have a really good news story to share with people. The Guinness um, World Record, there's a new Guinness Book of World Record holder, um, and he's really little, Richard (laughs) Scott William Hutchinson um, of Wisconsin. Uh, Tell us about him, why we're celebrating him today, and just, this is such a great good news story. It's a different type of Little Richie, and it's the best type of Little Richie uh, in all the land. So uh, Richard uh, Richard Hutchinson, Hutchinson was born five months prematurely. Um, he was born 131 days prior to his expected due date and weighed just 11.9 ounces. It's uh, so tiny that his parents could, could hold him in a single palm of their hands. And he is celebrating his first birthday um, uh, earlier this week. He has beaten the odds. And uh, just another very tangible, beautiful, vivid reminder that there is, it was more than a fetus in his mother's womb. It was a child to be cared for and not a choice to be considered. If you live in um, St. Croix County, Wisconsin, um, then, you know, track these people down and love on them. Rick and Beth are... Uh, are this little boy's parents, um, you know, he, I'm sure he still faces challenges as such Mm -hmm. a preemie, but I can say that, you know, from the, from the one-year-old birthday pictures that, um, that we're looking at across social media, um, he looks like a bright-eyed little one-year-old boy to me. (laughs) That is the truth. Yeah, it's just a great, it's a great good news story. It's a provocative conversation about the value of life. Um, It's also a provocative conversation about, you know, sometimes God surprises people in the medical community. Um, Mm -hmm. This family was given a 0% chance. That is what these parents were told. Um, They were told that their child had a 0% chance of survival. That was the neonatal unit's um, uh, prediction. And he's not only a survivor, he's really thriving. And so we just want to encourage you today that sometimes um, God is out to surprise us by his goodness and his grace, particularly when it comes to life. So Nick, thank you as always so much for joining us today. We love our conversations with you. Great to be with you, Carmen. Thanks. That's Nick Pitts. You can find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can find him on Twitter at J Nick Pitts. Um, hey, uh, this coming Sunday night, we are going to be holding our first ever live stream uh, event that's called Conversations with Carmen. So uh, those of you who are texting in this morning, I love to hear from you. You can always text me during the show, 877-933-2484. But if you want to, you know, talk to me, We're going to have a live stream event this coming Sunday evening. Um, You can check out all the information about that at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. All right. So a friend on the text line asking, um, hey, well, so when are we going to have Christianity parades or uh, Christianity month? So here's the reality. You know, you want to have a uh, Christianity parade in your community. Go organize a group of people to do that and go get a permit from your town. 
Now recognize that in the same way that every pride parade around the country has protesters, including a lot of Christians, um, your Christianity parade is going to have a lot of protesters in the culture today. So you got to be prepared to, uh, you know, to respond to that in a way that is positive and winsome. You know, if you think about the uh, the parades that Jesus was a part of, maybe you are going to think to yourself uh, about um, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Well, I might also remind you that there was a Christianity parade, and it was quite a different one, um, and it was essentially Jesus's death march to Calvary. So be careful what you wish for, and be careful how you characterize the events in the culture of the day, right? So we are people who are called to bear positive public witness to Christ in every moment of every day. Um, And yeah, I guess if you want to start a parade, you know, go out there and start leading it. Um, On the question of whether or not we're going to have a Christianity month, let me just remind you that every single day that we say, hey, it's 2021, we are referring to the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. we, We actually count our days. By, uh, by the resurrection of Jesus. After his death and resurrection, we, we get this calendar, right? So 2021 is the year of the Lord. 2021 is the year of the Lord. We don't get a month. We don't get a day. We don't get a parade. We get all of history and the full scope of it. So let's have heaven's perspective on what's happening not only in the world, but let's have heaven's perspective on, uh, on time itself. All right. Uh, Paul, what am I supposed to be doing next? Probably um, going to a break before we get to uh, the news. And then uh, you might want to tell who's coming up next. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. Luke Moon's going to join us next from the Philos Project and Providence Magazine. We're going to we're going to catch up on a lot of things going on in the Middle East. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. My wife and I have certainly been weather tested when it comes to raising teenagers. And even now, we still tussle over how to relate to our adult children. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When our 25-year-old son announced his divorce, Jane and I couldn't see eye to eye on what to do or what to say. We were confused and hurt, and it took a toll on our marriage. We started drifting apart, setting up emotional foxholes, and hunkering down alone. And it took the grace of God to snap us out of the funk and get us back together and focused. Are you and your spouse facing a crisis at home? Working through the pain alone is not an option. Pull together and get on the same page. Your marriage deserves it, and your teen needs a united family now more than ever. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. The wise men will bow down before the throne. And at his feet, they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around. Well, joining me now, my friend Luke Moon from the Philos Project. You can find what they're doing at philosproject.org. Philos is spelled P-H-I-L-O-S, philosproject.org. Luke, welcome back. Hey, Carmen. Good to be back. Good morning. Good morning. All right. So major, major transitions taking place in the Middle East. Let's start in Israel. Let's talk about the transition um, in leadership in the government in Israel. Yeah, well, there's been a big shift. Uh, the election uh, happened a while back and, and a coalition was able to be for- formed uh, that ousted 
the long-term uh, prime minister Bibi Netanyahu. I mean, that was that's a significant move. Uh, it's a it's an interesting coalition. It's made up of all aspects of society that really uh, makes me wonder how long it's going to be able to hold together. It's you know I I I keep describing it to people as if Bernie Sanders and Josh Howley uh, were able to form a a government that where they shared the presidency. That would basically be kind of what's going on here. It's very, it's really not ideologically aligned in terms of kind of support for one aspect of Israeli society or, or another. It's it, this coalition really is is united around their opposition to Bibi Netanyahu, right? Which, which is, which makes me wonder how long it's going to be able to hold together. But we'll see. So you um, have a piece posted right now at ChristianPost.com sharing with us some about your recent trip to Israel. And and take us to um, take us to the city of is it Lod or Lod? Yeah, well, I call it Lod, but Lod is also worse. I actually don't know which one's preferred. L-O-D. Take us to the city of Lod. It's one, you know, it's one of those ancient cities, one of the oldest cities in the world, and and it's actually near where the airport is in 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 Israel. So most people don't know about it. They, you know, they they're going to Tel Aviv or they're going to Jerusalem, but this this city is on the crossroads, uh, an ancient crossroads, right? And we there we met with a couple of people. One of the things that happened in this latest war with Israel was was really that we got this sense from talking to a lot of people that this time it was different this time something changed it was it was a different kind of there was a there was a different mood and one of the things that load is a mixed city which means jews and arabs live there together uh you know in a share you know go to the grocery store together and live in apartment buildings together and uh, there was there were some clashes basically between the Arabs and the Jews. Uh, particularly, there's a very fiery preacher, an imam in a in one of the mosques that often riles people up. And and this time, uh, during the conflict uh, with Israel and, and Gaza, this one really kind of inflamed a lot of kind of the Arabs in that town, and and they targeted, you know, burning Jewish cars and and. And there was a, a, a an apartment complex where Jews were living, and they were pushed out of there, and their apartment was set on fire. And it was, I mean, it's, it was really, it was it was quite eye opening. And the woman that we met there was, you know, she moved there because she wanted to, you know, her kids to grow up in a in a diverse community, and and now she's struggling with, you know, uh, you know, having to. To, to look their neighbor in the eye and not sure if if there's that support that they once had is is there again. Um, but then on the other side, we saw a a, a young guy who who's a, whose dad uh, owns a a computer store next door to a tire repair store, and the and the tire repair store was set on fire, likely by Jews responding to the night before of of the Arab violence, and and. Uh, this young man ended up uh, reaching out to people and, and starting a GoFundMe campaign to help pay for this this uh, Arab tire repair shop to be rebuilt. And people across Israel and across the world came to uh, support that, and they raised a bunch of money for him. So you saw these these experiences of real, you know, 
trauma where people are uncertain about the future, but you also saw uh, great opportunities where uh, of coexistence where you know things might stick together. So it was uh, it was very eye opening, and and um, it was it was nice to be back in Israel after being gone for sixteen months. So. I think it um, it probably surprises some people to um, to recognize that there are a lot of Arabs who live in Israel. I think that you know there's this misconce- misconception that you know Israel is uh, is a Jewish state, and so everybody who lives there is Jewish, and that's just not true. No, it's not. It's, I mean, actually, Arabs make up twenty percent of the population, right? And so that was one of the things that was just kind of. I really wanted to get out in more in in kind of the news was that when, you know, when Gaza, when Hamas in Gaza is launching rockets at Israel, they're they're launching rockets at Jews and Arabs and Druze and Bedouins and Arameans, like all kinds of people. Right. And and uh, whereas, you know, Gaza is actually pretty much homogeneously one people. And that's it. It's, It's it's Arab Muslim. And and there there's only there's maybe thirteen hundred Christians in the whole uh, in all of Gaza, and the rest are Muslim. And and they're launching rockets at a state that is it's eighty percent uh, Jewish, but twenty percent something else, and mostly Arab actually. All right, I'm talking with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. You can find him at philosproject.org. You can find the article we were just discussing um, uh, as well. You can find it at the Christian Post, which is just christianpost.com. When we talk about um, the the Middle East, you know, certainly Iran is big in the headlines in many in a myriad of ways right now. But they have elected a new president. You want to just brief us in on Iran's new president elect? Yeah. Um... His name is is Ibrahim Rasi. Uh, he is one of the, you know, basically one of the judiciary chiefs, and he's considered hardline. Uh, the reformed-minded people in Iran were basically sat this election out. They were like, "This is there's not real elections. There's 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 selection as as some called it. Basically, it was you know, there this is not a free election in reality, and so." This guy is is kind of it seems being groomed to be the next uh, Ayatollah uh, because the current one's getting old and and you know you never know and uh, he's you know has a long history of of some pretty brutal stuff uh, he was involved in in the mass killing of of uh, political prisoners back in the eighties. Uh, and has a long history of being very kind of aggressively hardline, uh, and it's it's unclear whether you know his his election or selection uh, is going to be good for the negotiations with Iran over their nuclear over restarting the nuclear deal. Um, whether that will be good or bad, it, it it's you know the different different pundits are are weighing in on that. I I. My concern is, regardless, is is the last thing that the world needs is is an Iran that's flush with cash, because they seem to use it to spark a lot of violence in the Middle East, and that's bad. All right, Luke and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're gonna I'm going to talk about well, we're gonna, I'm going to try to provoke Luke to talk about the um, the theocratic nature of 
this conversation. So what is Iran's government? Um, is it theocratic? And if so, then what's the relationship between this president-elect and the supreme leader that Luke just made reference to a moment ago? So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You say it comes to All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Luke Moon from the Philos Project. Um, Luke, on the surface, like when we say, oh, you know, a, a country elected a president, you know, people's imaginations are, oh, well, they elected a president like we elect a president. Like, you know, the U.S. and Iran kind of sound similar. They both have a president that's popularly elected. They both have these boisterous legislatures. They both have, you know, powerful judiciaries. But there's a huge difference between... Um, the United States of America, which does not have a supreme leader who functions as God's representative and the the sort of theocratic dominant influence ideologically in the culture, and the United States of America, where it's just pluralism, uh, I mean, you know, at best, pluralism at best. So um, talk with us about that, because is it, am I right that this supreme, the current supreme leader, like this is only the second person who served in that role since the Islamic, uh, since the founding of the Republic in 1979. So if we're talking about this new president elect potentially becoming the next supreme leader, I mean, we're talking about major shifts in Iranian politics. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a theocratic regime. I mean, there's not a ton of those in the world. Um, for you know, good reasons, because you know it's it's quite a lot to say that you are representing you know God's God, your your God's guy on earth, right? And uh, this this new leader, I mean, it's he he has a close relationship with uh, Khomeini, who is the who is the supreme leader, uh, and it's likely that he will be the next one. And and one of the challenges is that you know he. Because he's the focus of kind of the head of, of Shia Islam, uh, Shia Islam is is promoted all over the region, and it, it it's one of those that a lot of the conflict in the Middle East is a conflict between the two kind of branches of Islam, one Shia and one Sunni, uh, and Khomeini is the kind of the, the figurehead for the for the Shia and. Uh, there was a there was a moment there a few years ago where, you know, with uh, with with Assad in in Syria and you know in Yemen where where really it looked like the the Shia had the upper hand, uh, and they had a lot of money because of their oil revenues and it was they were spreading violence around the region and and then that kind of got cut off and so you know they've been holding back but one of the things that is important to, to recognize is that just because they're the leader of the country is this hardline um, you know theocratic ruler who's you know it's seemingly very very religious the reality is that most of the people in Iran are going through the motions they're not actually very devout in their faith. And one of the ways that you can see that is in their fertility rate, because the fertility rate of, uh, of secular people is much, much lower than the fertility rate of religious people. So religious people tend to have kids, non-religious don't. And the fertility rate in Iran 
is pretty much the same as the fertility rate of Italy, of France. So it's about 1.6 to 1.7, which is not very much. It's it's below replacement, and it's not definitely lower than what you find in in places that where where the the religion is actually adhered to by the majority of the population. All right, so can we talk a little bit about how the theology of this new president-elect in Iran, who you know we might anticipate in the future becomes the supreme leader, um, which in their theocratic understanding would make him like God's guy on earth, um, how does his theology influence his worldview um, and how might that lead us to anticipate, I don't know, things like Iran's funding of Islamic Jihad through, you know, well, in places like Lebanon or Yemen or elsewhere? Like, do those things line up uh, in terms of this individual? Well, they do. I mean, this, I mean, the, the you know, the, it's, it's a proper, complete religion. And most religions have, like, uh, you know, there's an end. Things are going somewhere, right? So the mm-hmm. return, mm-hmm. the... The establishment of what in what in in Islam is called the Ummah, which is the like the basically the the whole earth becomes saved to use Christian language, right? Uh, they become Muslim, they become uh, servants of Allah, right? And and that theology is a driving factor for you know their conflict. The the Shia conflict is is really about a who who. You know, really has the true authority with for, for for Islam for Muslims, but then who is like there's there's a difference in terms of how the you know how the end will come about. Both have eschatologies, right? And for the Shia, they're they're kind of waiting on this like kind of great Imam, like this this final guy. And there's a lot of um, you know speculation of. You know how long that will last, but it it definitely is a uh, you know Islam is a is a they be, believe in proselytization, sharing uh, the Allah and converting people, uh, and it but it's not always just through uh, words. It's it's often through uh, violent means as well, uh, and that's one of the reasons why you know Islam when it where it borders another non-Muslim country tends to, there's, there's conflict on that line. Uh, the, you know, the bloody borders of Islam, I mean, it's, it's in Thailand, it's in the Philippines, it's in Israel, it's in, you know, uh, it's in, um, uh, India. I mean, all over the world, uh, where, where Islam is meeting something else, there tends to be, uh, violence. And that's unfortunate, but which kind of Islam is uh, matters, obviously, and this new ruler uh, will potentially one day be the guy who is is overseeing that you know establishment of the uh, the great you know Islamic world. Hmm. Um, all right, we um, we have like a minute left. Do you think that you can make a little bit of a projection um, in terms of the effect on the Biden administration's commitment to renew the Iran nuclear deal in the midst of the election of this new president? I I think it it there. I think there's going to be a deal of some kind, just because there's so much expectation for it to happen. I just think it's going to be a disaster for the people of the region because 
it's it's uh, it's a lot of money back in the hands of Iran, and they spend that mm-hmm. money uh, promoting war in the region, and that continues. It happened before, and it's going to happen again. And I, I wish the Biden administration wouldn't buy into that, but they're going to, yeah. I think. All right. As always, Luke, um, really helpful conversation. Great perspective. Um, just We just really appreciate your expertise and the way that you uh, share it with us. So thank you so much. My pleasure. You guys can find Luke at the Philos Project, philosproject.org. We'll be right back. All right. I love our listeners. So a couple of you have um, have texted me. One of you has emailed me. In fact, there is a march for Jesus. This gets us back to the earlier conversation about, hey, when are the Christians going to be marching? Well, so um, thank you to the person who said, have you not seen the one man march for Jesus at the intersection of Highway 70 and OHB? That's near where I live. And yes, I do. I see that guy out there. He has a he has a placard out there almost every single day. And he's like a one man march for Jesus all the time. So yeah, hats off to that guy. Um, and thank you for the person who texted in and reminded us um, about the the annual March for Jesus. There's an annual March for Jesus. You can find it at themarchforjesus.org. Um, and it's every year um, on the weekend of Pentecost. And so there are a couple of places in Minnesota where there are, are groups already organized to participate in next year's March for Jesus, June the 4th, 2022. For those of you looking for, um, hey, where can I um, participate? There you go. You can go to the marchforjesus.org and participate in the one that's already organized in Bemidji or the one already organized in the Twin Cities. They got all kinds of places all over the country. And you could organize one in your own community. There you go. For those of you who, you know, are like, you know, I know that you were kind of saying it, Um, tongue-in-cheek. Well, where's the March for Christianity? Ha-ha! I now have found for you an answer to your question. Um, You know, let's, um, if this is something that's important to you and you want to make a positive public witness for Christ and you don't really know maybe quite how to do that, there's probably people out there who are already organized to do something that you could just participate in and you could bring it to your own community if you're interested in doing so. Um, Alrighty, we're going to have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We've got Dr. Brett Nix from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He and I are going to talk about, well, obviously, medical headlines. And then a really fun conversation with one of my favorite authors, Charles Martin, will be back with his latest book, The Letter Keeper. So all of that is in the next hour. Um, You can visit MyFaithRadio.com, get all the info that you need for this Sunday evening's live stream event, Conversations with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.